Hi, welcome to this edition of the Halal Food Podcast. Today we've got John Royal from the National Farmers Union who has agreed for us to have a chat about how animals are raised in the UK so that we can throw more light on some aspects of uh, farming in the UK. Uh, as the halal sector manager, I do get a lot of questions on some aspects of farming and I'm not a farmer myself. And I just thought John is the right person to throw some light on, on how animals are raised in the UK so that UK consumers and those of uh, uh, other consumers in the Middle East can understand what UK farmers do. So without, without much ado, I invite John to introduce himself before we start. John. Good afternoon, Arvel, uh, and good afternoon, everybody else. Yeah, I'm John Royal. I'm the Chief Livestock Advisor for the National Farmers Union, uh, representing the interests of around 37,000 beef and sheep producers in England and Wales. So a substantial number. And I look after the National Livestock Board, which effectively is the policy-making forum for the NFU. So, John, you've mentioned National Farmers Union. So somebody listening to us from, say, Saudi Arabia, what uh -huh. is the National Farmers Union? Okay, so the National Farmers Union was founded well, well over 110 years ago now. So it's got a lot of history. Mm -hmm. um, first started out in London, where a group of farmers came together, uh, where they felt they needed to represent the interests of, of British agriculture, the UK yeah. government, not only with government itself, but also further down the supply chain. Um, so we represent 55,000 farming businesses in England and Wales. So we're a membership organisation, so people pay to join the NFU and they get a number of services for, for being a member. Um, that may be discounts on things like insurance, on cars, but also but the key thing and what we invest our money in at the NFU, we have around 300 professional staff where we support our senior office holders, so they're elected members. And um, I guess really we are um, very much focused on the policy um, of what underpins UK agriculture. Now that could be everything in terms of all types of livestock production, including dairy, um, right the way through to cereals, oil seeds, protein crops, and also horticulture. Thank you very much, John. Uh, so I just returned from, from Gulf Food in, in Dubai. And one question that kept coming up uh, when, when we interact with consumers or, or with buyers is how animals are fed in the UK. And the reason for this is principles of halal uh, promote what we call uh, tayyib. Tayyib means something that is wholesome. So consumers want assurance as to how our animals are, are raised in the UK, how they are fed. So are they fed with uh, protein from any other animals? Are they fed with grains? Are they fed with grass? Can you just take your time to explain how animals are fed? So let's focus on small ruminants and large ruminants. So sheep and go uh, goats and cattle. Okay, uh, that's a good, good question, Paul. Um... So uh, if anybody has been to the UK, we have a very much maritime climate. So um, we have quite a bit of rain uh, and around 65% of UK arable, sorry, UK agricultural land is only suitable for growing grass. So we are very, very good as a nation at growing grass. We have a long growing season uh, from sort of early spring, it depends on which part of the country you are, all the way through to late autumn, where this country grows grass, a lot of grass. Now, whether that be in the uplands areas or in the lowland areas, there are certain parts of the country where we would grow cereals. 
where the land is more suitable for because it's flatter. Um, you know, wheat, barley, oilseed, rape, things like protein crops like peas and beans would be grown. Uh, but predominantly, because we are such good, <laughs> a good nation at growing grass, um, we have a lot of grazing livestock. So whether that be dairy production, beef production, sheep production, and some goat production, which is linked to um, dairy goat production. Um, so um, in terms of the feed that our animals eat, and I'm going to focus on sheep to start with, I would say pretty much 95% of a sheep diet is grass and grass or forage based only. So they would pretty much, when those animals, those lambs are born, to the, and we typically lamb our sheep in the spring, so from late February through to May, depending on where you, you reside in the country. Um, the, the ewes would probably have around six weeks of supplementary feed prior to lambing. So they would have um, mainly a sort of cereal-based diet. So uh, rolled barley, wheat, supplemented with a bit of sugar, beet pork, um, and some uh, protein within there. So that might be peas, beans, etc. Um, we do not feed um, any animal mammalian protein to any animal in the UK. It's banned. has been banned since the late 90s. Uh, and having worked for government, and having worked for the government's veterinary service, there is very, very stringent testing all the way through the supply chain in terms of checking not only the um, the feed that is that comes into this country or feed that is produced in this country by our feed millers, uh, and they test for um, this, you know, these products that are in there, and they never find anything. But we maintain that really, really strict level of ensuring compliance. And I think the UK is, is very strong in that regard. We have some very, very strong underlying regulation, which bans all feeding of mammalian meat and bone meal uh, to ruminants and other animals. So with that regard, um, you know, we have developed an agricultural system, which is very much reliant on forage because we're good at growing forage, uh, whether that be permanent pasture or herbal lays, where we sort of introduce um, different types of clover mixes and vetches within the grass wall to make the, the grass more productive. Um, so lambs in particular, I'll go back to my point where the ewes may have a bit of supplementary feed just to bring them into the peak of condition prior to lambing and ensure they've got lots of milk for those lambs. The lambs are born, generally um, they may be born inside, they'll spend 24 hours inside, and as, as long as the weather is okay, they're outside and they will never come in again. They live their entirety of their life out at pasture. So um, typically for the first four to six months, they will be suckling their mother, you, uh, whilst grazing. And, and the animal naturally weans itself effectively. So we would typically start selling our lambs off grass. So they're just fattened on grass, um, literally really from June onwards. And, and that season would then go all the way through um, until the following spring when the new season lamb starts to come on board again. So um, I hope that reassures um, you know the people who are interested in our product, our, but uh, I can categorically uh, state that both our beef and sheep production is, is pretty much forage based and, and we did um, a bit of research not too long ago uh, where we calculated just under 80 percent of our um of our beef animals are finished on a wholly forage diet so the only supplementary feed that they would get would be cereals based and that is generally homegrown wheat and barley that would be growing in this country and predominantly that wheat or barley may even be grown on the farm itself Thank you very much, John. I think what you've just said is, is so powerful in a sense that it's going to reassure halal consumers 
that for instance uh no protein from pork is used in feeding mm -hmm. our sheep and goats and cattle in the uk because this is a question that comes time and time again i remember a few years ago i was with you on a farm in leicestershire where this question came up so thank you very much for clarifying it and i just hope that our major buyers in the middle east in europe in the uk will hear this and get reassured that look this is what we feed our our, our systems are mainly grass or forage based and that no animal uh, protein is actually fed to our animals and i, don't I mean just to add to that oh well actually sorry just to add to that as well is that um our production in terms of ruminants and pork production is is very very different so farmers will specialize you would get a very much specialist pig producer that wouldn't be really producing beef or lamb so, you know, in, in pretty much all cases, beef and sheep production is a very much specialised process linked to where you farm in the country. So, right. you know, and because it's very extensive, yeah. you wouldn't be keeping pigs anyway. So they're not even on the same farm. Nice. So. nice one. Thank you very much, John, for clarifying this. Another thing you mentioned, which many people may need some clarification on is, you said that we've got vast lands in the UK. Most of it is suitable for, for the growth of grass. So somebody may be asking, so if it's good for the growth of grass, why can it be good for arables? So for, for maize, yeah. uh, cereal, and other things. Can you just let us know what the difference is in terms of suitability for grass? for growth of grass and suitability for arable uh, agriculture yeah sure so we've got lots of different soil types in the uk so um although we don't have particularly high mountains um they are such that the climate and the soil depth and the rockiness of the ground even though it gets good grass cover the soil layer the top layer is, is simply not suitable for for running um, large arable machinery over that land. So it's not possible to plough it, cultivate it, and then plant a crop that would then grow and give a sufficient return in terms of the tonnage that we would expect. Um, you know, many of our farms are, are smaller family farms. They are um, smaller fields enclosed by hedges and stone walls, very traditionally in some ways. Um, and the vast majority of the UK, whether it be in the, in the southwest of the, uh, of the country or in Wales, in the north, east and northwest of England, it's very much upland areas and, and it's not suitable for growing arable crops because, you know, we pride ourselves in the UK as being very sort of technologically advanced in terms of the equipment that we use, our productivity um, is really quite important. So the equipment and the tractors and the combines and the sewing equipment the, and, the, and, and such, it's of sufficient size, it doesn't really work very well in some of these very much smaller fields. Yeah. Saying that, having a, a good combination of livestock and arable in the locality it also is quite important because our livestock farmers very much like to buy the straw off the arable farmers. So because we have fairly inclement wet weather and sometimes snowy weather in the UK, yeah. um, we would bring our animals in during the winter to house them in, in large sheds, open, open barns, and we bed them down with straw. Um, so it's quite important that, you know, having that availability of straw to come from the arable areas into the livestock areas is really, really quite important. But the, predominantly, um, the, the livestock farmers will grow their own forage. So they will set aside fields to grow hay and silage, which they can then conserve and feed back to the animals in the winter. So um, 
We tend to find our arable crops, wheat, barley, oil seeds, protein crops, are generally grown in the east and south of the country. Thank you very much, John. Uh, another issue I want us to tackle is the issue of traceability. Many mm -hmm. consumers want some assurance that their products can be traced if there's any, any, any problem or even if there's no problem. They, they should be assured that the product they are receiving can be traced to the farm. Do we have any systems in the UK that you can explain in terms of traceability that our buyers, media buyers in, in around the world can be assured that our products are traceable? Absolutely. Um, well, we're world leading, I would suggest, in terms of livestock traceability. Uh, we've been doing this for many, many years, 20, 30 years. We've had very good, sophisticated um, national databases. So um, if I deal with sheep, first of all, then, so um, and if you're an individual farmer in the UK, you have to be registered with government, given a special registration number, and you're allocated a, a unique um, number that is unique to your farm. The systems only allow that farmer to order ear tags, so the tags that go in the, in the sheep's ear are unique to that farm. And the systems only allow an ear tag to be issued once, so you can't replicate the same number. So the farmer buys ear tags and he's, an op, um, he's obliged then to identify every sheep that is born on that farm. And that and so he registers that animal in terms of his on his movement books or in the data which he tagged that animal. So when that animal leaves the holding, the individual number and the flock number is lodged on the national database to say that moved from John Royal's farm to a livestock market on a particular date in a particular vehicle at a particular time. And that's arrived at a time. And this was the haulier's name along with any other information about that animal. So when that animal arrives at the market, it is then allotted a pen, it is bought by somebody else, and then the market also reports to the national database where that animal went. So we have full lifetime traceability of, of sheep in the UK. Um, there is a subtle difference in terms of animals under 12 months of age can move as a batch, mm -hmm. but they are still read individually. Yeah. But sheep, adult sheep, uh, ewes and rams, and including goats, are individually reported and recorded throughout their life until they arrive at the slaughterhouse. So that is pretty unique. In terms of cattle, yeah. we'll be recording more information. So not only is the farm registered, it's issued with its unique herd number and unique individual animal numbers. Yeah. So when the calf is then born, the farmer is obliged within seven days to tag that animal, register its birth to the national database, include the date of birth, the breed, the sex, the dam ID, the cow ID, the sire ID, which we encourage. And of course, whenever that calf then moves off the whole thing, individually it is reported and recorded to the national database. So again, we have lifetime traceability of that animal. And the animal is also in, um, accompanied by a paper passport, which indicates the holding of origin and every location the animal has lived throughout its life. And each time it moves from one farm to the next, it has a stamp and the original key signs to say that animals moved off their moved off their holding so i'd like to assure <laughs> people that might wish to buy our product that we have very very good traceability in the uk um, we are actually think we can get better so we're currently designing a brand new multi-species database uh, 
that relies, you know, on, you know, we want to remove that paper because we're all using smartphones um, where we can create that movement in real time. So we have real time traceability. So we know where those sheep are going the moment they are loaded onto that trailer. And the new sheep service, the first part of the new service uh, will be issued at the end of this, at the end of this month. So, um, and then just one thing I, I would like to say is that um, we don't just use, rely on manual reading of the ear tag where people can make mistakes. Each of the ear tags has a chip in its, in the ear, in the chip, in, in the ear tag. So we read those electronically. So there is no mistakes. And whatever we read the ear tag with that automatically connects to your farm software package. So there are no mistakes in terms of reporting that individual animal number to its location. Great piece of system there, uh, John. Thanks for taking your time to explain every bit of it. And I'm sure my listeners and my viewers in the Middle East, particularly because I keep uh, mentioning the Middle East, the Middle East, that is one of the destinations we are targeting at. And yeah. they always want some assurance on feeding, on, on traceability. So it's great that, look, I, 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 as, I as I said at the, at, the, at the beginning, I'm not a farmer. It's good to have somebody who works very closely with farmers to come into this program to, 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 to explain that to, to, to our, our, our viewers. Yeah, I mean, it's probably worth saying, oh, well, while we have traceability, and, and you hit the nail on the head initially, is it's, it's about food safety. You know? If there was an issue and something was found in that carcass that, that the, the veterinary officer in that meat plant felt, hmm, there's not something right there, I can trace that animal all the way back down the supply chain and do an investigation on the farm to say, well, is there something wrong? So that tra full traceability in terms of food safety, but also animal health is incredibly important. So we've always got one eye on the fact that should we get an exotic disease in the UK, we have the ability then to trace where those animals have gone to. So we can go back to the farms of origin and try and try and find where the disease started from. So um, the point of animal traceability is, 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 is well known to the UK. Um, you know, in the past we've, we've had exotic disease and okay but we've managed to deal with it because we've got good traceability nice one nice one thank you very much john i just want to add that in addition to the clarification you've done on feeding on traceability we also have robust halal certification in the uk so for those of you uh trying to import from the uk i work very closely with the certifiers and i know most of them are reputable uh most of them are recognized so for those of you in dubai most of them are recognized by esma for those in saudi arabia most of our certifiers are re recognized by sfda and sasu so whatever you are buying from the uk it will be it will be supervised it will be certified by a certifier who is a reputable or who is a recognized certifier. So we've, we've got traceability on the farm, traceability at the abattoirs, and the lay, another layer of certification, which is the halal certification, to assure you that uh, we've got the right products for you. Do you have something to add to the, to, to, to the traceability again? I, I just got too excited when you, <laughs> when you started talking about it, John. Yeah, I mean, it's just to say that um, we don't just leave farmers to it. Um, but we have government inspectors that are going out on farm randomly inspecting farms to check that you're doing it right so um, they will they will have access to the national database yeah. and they will say okay John well you have 500 sheep on your farm 
let me see them, let me see your movement records and let me check that you have reported, reported those that information correctly. So we have that government oversight and that national inspection service effectively that checks compliance from farm all the way through to the abattoir. And if, if there's any point of that chain that's broken or if there's any point where the authorities aren't convinced that the farmer is doing something right, those animals aren't allowed to go into the food chain. So we have an ultimate thing there. And then one final thing there, we, we also have farm assurance. So again, which is um, an industry-led assurance scheme, which also covers traceability and feed, and animal welfare, labor provision, environmental credentials, all of those sorts of things. So again, linked to our traceability, uh, not only do we talk about the animal's um, identity, but also its assurance status as well. So again, you know, it's that extra layer which goes over and above government regulation. Excellent, excellent stuff. Uh, John, another question that comes to mind is, again, when we were out in Dubai, somebody came to me, a buyer, and said, what breeds of animals do you have in the UK? Uh, what breed of animal? There was some some meat on display. He said, "What breed of animal is this? Uh, of or, uh, yeah, what, what breed of animal was this from? Can you just take us through breed selection and what are the special traits or characteristics of UK breeds?" Okay, shall I start with cattle for a change? Then, so um, I think it's fair to say that you know UK agriculture gave the world Aberdeen Angus, Hereford, Sussex. All of these really renowned breeds now, which are used across the US, yeah. South America, in Europe, um, you know, they are renowned um, breeds with genetic traits that give them a unique flavor and quality in terms of that finished beef animal. And they're remarkably tough animals that do extremely well on forage based production systems. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's not unusual to expect that, you know, in South America, where they also rely on probably a grass-fed system certainly to start with they rely on british genetics great so a lot of our you know cattle breeds you know uh, that originated in the uk are now you know they're used around the world so uh, we would use a range of cattle breeds in, in the uk um and we'll probably see from the you know the suckler herd so generally beef animal um they would tend to be aberdeen angus um hereford's um, and some continental influence there in terms of limousine cattle. So these are animals which are effectively good mothers. Um, they're, easy, they're easy carving because we don't want to interfere with the cow. We want it to carve naturally. Yeah. We want lots of hybrid vigor. Um, Let me just stop you. Help. Let me yeah. stop you there. What is carving? What is carving? M most of my listeners may not understand the technical term. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. So carving is the cow gives birth to the calf. What we want to do is that cow to carve naturally naturally so we don't want to interfere with that cow we want her to carve that animal naturally so uh, we don't want calves hugely big at birth weights because sometimes then you'd probably need a vet or the farmer to assist the cow in carving that animal uh, carving that calf so you know we like really healthy animals that are that maintain their own body condition and produce lots of milk all based on a forage diet so we that be eating grass outside or forage or hay inside. So we're very much focused on genetics because what we actually want is that calf um, to grow in terms of its food conversion rate, so turning grass into muscle quickly. 
So we, we want a beef animal really that finishes around the sort of 24 months of age, effectively, because we believe um, that sort of age in terms of the quality of the meat is, is, is very, very good, very tender. Um, because it's had a forage-based tire, you know, the taste, et cetera, is very, very good. But also, we're also focused in terms of our productivity and our climate footprint in that, you know, the more efficient we become, and we are very efficient in the UK compared to the global average, a lot of it is based around genetics. So if you feed an animal well, it converts that feed into muscle and grows well to a suitable carcass size um, of the right conformation, it means we're very efficient. So we, we use breeds and we've used genetics and developed those over the years, and they're now highly sought after. Um, but in terms of the sheep industry, we, we have lots and lots more breeds. Um, we have what's called a stratified industry. So because we have the upland areas, uh, there are some areas up in the uplands which are um, quite harsh in terms of their weather. So therefore, you breed a sheep breed that, that can withstand that clement weather. So we're talking wind, rain, snow. Um, so we have a hardy breed, and, and those hardy breeds would then be crossed with another animal that produces then a breeding sheep, which is then crossed with an, uh, a male animal, the ram, which has strong um, meat potential. So much of the lamb that we produce in the UK, the mother comes from the upland areas, comes down to the lowland areas, crossed with a, a meat type ram to produce a really, really good carcass, which would anyway be typically be around 19 and a half kilos dead. Um, so again, these lambs are incredibly efficient in terms of um, you know, growing, having a really good start based on their mother's milk and then obviously then growing on grass. And as I say, um, the genetics that we use mean that these animals uh, finish off grass and they don't need any supplementary feeding. So, John, general uh, rule. so the, yeah, did you want me to sort of say the type of breeds that we, we have then? Yeah, just, um, I just wanted to come in before you, before you land. Yeah. Uh, you, you talked about breeding uh for 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 the best traits and all that somebody may be asking does this or does this genetic work affect the taste of the meat or does it not have well does it affect the taste of the meat in a negative way no absolutely not i think we've done you know we'll be dealing with i mean our customers buy because it's, it's a great quality product yeah. um you know we select a, a, an animal that we know is going to have um First of all, is is very fertile, so produces at least ideally two lambs per ewe. Um, she's got two teeth, so she can feed two lambs. So that's always quite important. Good motherability, motherability. So therefore, she she has those lambs and she looks after them very well. Um, we want her to be healthy, so we want good longevity. So we want the ewe to last many years. We want her to have at least six or seven crops of lambs, um, but we want her lambs to grow exceptionally well. Um, and that's why we use a, a ram that may be from a different breed that, that passes on those um, qualities to that give that lamb the unique carcass size, uh, growth rates, but it doesn't affect the quality of the meat. Oh, and I would probably suggest that, you know, the production system in the UK, because we again, you know, we keep talking about forage based, we don't have feedlots in the UK, is that sort of flavour of the grass are effectively comes through in the meat and um and you know some may say that you know different lamb reared in different parts of the country has subtly different flavors so welsh lamb might taste slightly different to 
salt marsh lamb or, or lamb you know reared in cumbria so um yeah very different yeah also also you mentioned feedlot uh many consumers who are familiar with uh feedlot systems in different countries will uh, will will assume that all countries use uh feedlot you did say uk doesn't use feedlot can you just clarify that yes you do you did you mean that yeah we don't we don't use them typically we you know we, no we wouldn't because we we don't farm on that scale um so we, we'd have large sheep flocks don't get me wrong you know we, we'd have some farmers with several thousand ewes and that wouldn't be unusual um but the whole idea really in the uk is to utilize what we what we do best and that is grow grass and you don't want to bring animals inside and feed them expensive corn you know with things that are going on in the world at the moment you know we don't want to be buying in purchased feed when we can grow grass in this country and whether it be growing grass or we can grow good quality silage which is um you know very digestible high in protein that, that finishes the animal without the need for purchased feed so so we, we don't bring animals inside to finish them that would be very unusual if we did want to finish animals um outside so that would be early in the new year so sort of january february march but the animals remain outside we might just give them a little bit of supplementary feeding but that might just be a bit of rolled barley so just a bit of crushed cereal yeah. um nothing more than that and that's just really just to to help them along when um you know the weather's quite inclement great 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 yeah you were still talking about the, the breeze of of uh of sheep do you want to continue yeah. with that well yeah i mean it's just um i mean there's so many um that we'd use in the uk um you know the terminal size that we typically use um so the british bred um animals would be things like hampshire down suffolk mm -hmm. um actually what we tend to be using now is texels and um, charolais uh, from the near continent you know these these were introduced into the uk you know, 30 40 years ago and and effectively now we've bred, bred our own texels and charolais and beltex um terminal sires to the rams um which is you know different to those that you find in europe but as i sort of said before um breeding the the breeding you um she is a, effectively a mix between a very much hardy hill sheep and another slightly larger hardy hill sheep to to uh, produce a mule a north country mule so these are um you may see in literature that i'll send you but um they are quite pretty looking sheep with sort of Roman noses, speckled faces, and um, sort of curly white wool. Um, so they are bred that way because they are good mothers. They produce lots of milk and lots of lambs. Uh, and when crossed with that um, terminal ram, um, terminal sire, they produce excellent lambs for the market. Nice one, John. Once again, thank you again. Now I'm going to divert a little bit to one of the festivals we have in the, in the, in the uh, Islamic calendar. And you and I have had uh, conversations on Kurbani Festival. Uh, for those of you who do not know Kurbani, just in case somebody is, is watching or listening and that person doesn't know what Kurbani is, it's, it's, it's a festival which happens once a year where Muslims, uh, capable Muslims, uh, pay for an animal to be processed on their behalf. Now, John, uh, this year is gonna fall on around the 10th of July, uh, 2022. But uh, the animal, as you know, must be sexually mature and sexual maturity 
has been interpreted in lamb to be around six months. That is when some breeds sexually mature. So the question I've got for you is this year, do you think you talked about the, the, the lambing season being around April? Do you think there would be some animals that would have attained that age of six months on the 10th of July? And do you think if, if there are no lambs that will be available, do you think we will have enough older sheep to cater for the tens of thousands of animals that will be required for the festival? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would like to say, I mean, it's what an important market. And, and our farmers absolutely recognise the importance of, um, uh, you know, the halal trade to the to UK producers. They're very much focused on that. Um, but in terms of lambing, typically, it's about market signals. So if our members realise that Kabani is coming forward, and we spent quite a bit of time talking to our members about this, is that they can start lambing sheep naturally from, from early January. All the way through to May, so we would have southwest parts of England, southern England, where the weather is warmer, drier, milder in the winter. They will be lambing their sheep that little bit earlier. And and as I sort of said, you know, the focus on productivity, our lambs do reach that maturity very very quickly because they get such a good start growing with their mother because they're consuming a lot of milk and they naturally wean themselves onto grass. So. Um, there will be certainly um, some early lambing flocks in the UK that will have lambs that are fit for market in time for Kabani in July. New season lamb. I think that's 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 fair to say. In terms of market signals back to our producers, that carry over a old season lamb. So what I think the industry will be doing, they'll be very much sort of focused on the fact that if we have relationships with with um, abattoirs processors that we know that orders are going to come in then we can ensure there is a sufficient carryover of, of old season lamb that would meet the Gabani market so it's important that you know you and i all have this dialogue so that we can inform our farmers that you know they're producing lambs through an extended production here to meet these various markets because it's not just the allow market we're focused on we're also focused on the uk retail market to ensure that we've got lamb available, British lamb available throughout the year. And that means that we, we have lambs coming to market uh, you know, throughout the year um, to ensure that you know, we put the best possible lamb on consumers' plates. Exactly. Yeah, I'm happy you've clarified this, John, because last year there, there was a lot of rumors going around within the Muslim community that there is absolutely no way of finding lamb that would have been six months in july last year last year the, the kurbani was around 20th but there were rumors that there was absolutely no lamb that would have attained the age of six months which is the age of maturity so i'm happy you mm -hmm. clarified that there would be some lamb even if the numbers are limited and also mm -hmm. market signals can actually if, if if there is assurance that uh farmers can get a guaranteed market and a premium for their product some will be happy to lamb naturally uh, around january to be to, to cater for the market absolutely yeah they, they will target their production to make sure that those lambs are, are fit for market and clearly they'll be over uh, six months by that time otherwise you know we're looking at old season lambs so we're looking at carrying over those lambs that were born probably towards april may the previous year and they've come all the way around and they'll be ready for, for, for slaughter in, in, in July and clearly it'll keep coming forward for the uh, for, for a while yet. So yeah, I mean, the industry with the right signals can accommodate this. 
uh, to, because you know we want that level of assurance and trust from the Muslim community into the British product we're Thank you very much, John, uh, because that is something that is of grave concern to me as somebody as a link between the agriculture uh, industry and, and the Muslim community. So to interact with you today to clarify on these things, I think it's excellent. And I'm hoping many people will listen or many people will watch this podcast and be informed about what actually happens in the uh, in the farming sector and also particularly around Kurbani and also uh, we actually start in Ramadan next month. So there will be an increase in the consumption of, of, of uh, meat. However, the, the good thing about Ramadan is there is no requirement for age. So yeah. there is no strict requirement for age. So that is that is uh, great. And I'm also, also hoping that some farmers will listen to this podcast because they need to know the dates for, for these festivals. So yeah, so next month is, uh, is, uh, is Ramadan. Immediately after Ramadan, there will be uh, the the Eid, the small Eid, which is Eid al-Fitr. Then two months after that, in July, there will be uh, there will be the big Kurbani month for 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 our farmers. So that is good for 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 us to to sort of discuss. Hopefully, there will be some farmers listening to it as well. So in terms of sustainability, uh, John. It is something that the younger Muslim consumer is looking for. The younger Muslim consumer is not like uh, our forefathers who just wanted products based on price. The younger consumer is looking for welfare, quality, and sustainability. Can you yeah. assure uh, the consumer that uh, products that are produced in the UK are farmed to highly sustainable uh, farming systems? The quality is good. You already talked about quality with regards to feeding and also welfare. Can you just just comment briefly on these things, please? Yeah, um, in terms of animal welfare, the UK is ranked, you know, in the sort of top sector in terms of animal welfare on farms. So I go back to good underlying regulation that covers welfare on farm in transport and slaughter. You know, we take that very seriously. There's, there's a whole load of regulation and regulators that would that would check activity on to make sure that um, everything is forward. And as well, I mentioned before that you know huge parts of our industry are already in farm assurance. So again, that's an additional layer of um, independent inspection to make sure that farmers meet the standards of the scheme, which are very much focused on health and. So we take welfare very seriously. I mean, poor welfare is poor productivity. You know, farmers are all about making money and lame sheep and well sheep, sheep that have a problem in terms of a disease are simply not as productive. So it's in all farmers' interest to maintain health and welfare of their flock. Um, we are very, very low users of uh, medicines in veterinary medicine in the UK. Um, again, you know, we've demonstrated, we've reduced our use of antibiotics in the agricultural sector by 53% in the last sort of five, six years. So we are very, very low users and we would not use them prophylactically. So effectively we don't use antibiotics to prevent something. We'd only use it in emergency cases where an animal needed for its, for its health and its welfare. Um, in terms of when we do use medicines, clearly they are prescribed by the vet. The vet visits every farm, they have to at least every year. Uh, vets are responsible working with farmers to do bespoke farm health plans so they again they work with the farmer to make sure the health and welfare of those animals are are, um, are well maintained and again um, the farmers would record all use of veterinary medicines 
And again, there's a we work for um, our HDB have an e-medicine hub. So effectively, you know, we're starting to record what medicines we use on a national database. So we can say to our customers around the world, this is what we are genuinely using in terms of medicine. And because we're low users, that would indicate that our health and welfare in the UK is really very, very good. In terms of environmental credentials, again, you know, I've talked about um, the extensive nature of our beef and sheep production in the UK. We're very much reliant on forage. Growing grass is good for biodiversity. Um, animals defecate on land, which again is good for the biodiversity of, of that land. And, and we know that permanent pasture and grassland, because you're not turning it over through ploughing, is a great sequester of carbon. So, you know, we're very proud that we know we're producing grass. Um, we're very proud that we maintain hedges, um, field boundaries, walls, trees, all are great for biodiversity and sustainability. Um, we also use farmyard manures um, as, a, as a feed for the, for the forage, for the grass. You know, we're wanting to rely less and less on, on purchased fertilizer. Again, you know, with world activities at the moment, you know, purchased fertilizer are incredibly expensive. When we got this, this marvelous natural resource of farmyard manure, be able to use that as part of your rotation improve your biodiversity and your sustainability of your production is really, really quite important. And also we have, uh, finally, we, we have, um, you know, government incentives uh, to encourage farmers to adopt farming in a very environmental way. So when you have parts of your farm that are less productive, you know, government will encourage you to plant trees, um, re-wet that area. And so you get a greater range of biodiversity so really what the farmer is doing is farming on his really really good land on his poorer land he might be encouraged then through um, additional support from government to do really environmental good things yeah. so, um, so we're very proud of what we you know our aim in UK which is the net zero by 2040 um, you know the industry is really really serious about doing that we know that the consumer particularly young consumers are very much sort of focused on if I'm eating red meat am I harming the planet well you know, if you're going to eat red meat, you know, meat produced in the UK is produced at a very low carbon footprint compared to anywhere else. And we have this ambition to net zero in terms of being able to sequester carbon, our environmental goods, and having healthy, highly productive livestock, uh, you know, which, which clearly emit uh, less methane. Thanks again, John. Uh, I'm happy you've just explained all these things that are encouraging biodiversity, planting trees and just ensuring that the 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 the, the atmosphere the, the 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 systems are in place to ensure that uh, current production systems do not jeopardize the future production of food for for future generations in islam there is the concept of khilafa khilafa means stewardship of nature here are uh, god we believe that muslims believe that god presented the earth in in a, in a balanced way and we have no right at all as human beings to jeopardize anything or to destroy the environment so i'm very very happy that you explained yeah. that yeah i mean just, just, sorry, just to say um that also extends to water quality as well so as you know we, we have quite a bit of rain but we want to manage that precious water resource so you know it's interesting that you know you'll be speaking to people in the gulf where water is particularly precious um, it's also precious here in the UK, you know, um, you know, 
Farmers play a huge part in terms of managing flood risk, also managing um, water availability in terms of clean water going into our reservoirs that, that feed our systems. So, um, you know, it's incredibly important that, you know, when we're grazing livestock and using that farmyard manure to fertilize the ground, that we do it responsibly, that we're not polluting our water courses. So again, you know, lots of regulation there, lots of good practice operated by farmers. So it's really important for us here as well. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, John, uh, having you on this podcast. Now, I want you to have a final word on the podcast. Assuming somebody sat in Saudi Arabia or somebody sat in Jordan, not sure whether to buy British. What do you have? What word or what uh, comment do you have for the person to assure them that, look, our systems are fit for purpose? Well, we have the heritage. We have the quality of land. We have exceptional farmers that love what they do. Um, they love their livestock. They're, many of them you know, are very, very proud. They produce an amazing product that the quality is exceptional yeah. and it's produced to very very high welfare and food safety standards that, that that has a strong history and a strong regulatory um requirements that ensure that that product achieves wherever it customer is in the world it lands in the best condition and you can be sure of its food safety so um, yeah, we're very proud of what we do in this country, and um, yeah, and I think we we can always continue to improve. And um, and you know, with the interests in sustainability, climate impact, health and welfare, you know, we're all striving to be better. But when you can be assured that quality is amazing. Great, great. Thanks so much, John. Uh, just to let our listeners and viewers know that this recording is available on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple and Google Podcasts, and other traditional podcast platform so once again thank you very much john and i will really want to welcome you back to to this program maybe during kurbani time so that we can we can educate the the, the consumer on what is going on uh in kurbani excellent happy to do that thank Thanks. you very much so uh, i look forward to catching up another time thank you